Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about an issue that some people may have thought was history, but has come again to be important in our contemporary times, uh, showing us that we do have lessons that we can learn from history uh, that can be helpful for thinking through the issues that we face today. We're going to be talking about the Supreme Court and the idea of court packing. And for our conversation today, I'm joined by, uh, I don't know, is he the oldest of old friends of mine? He's close, <laughs> of mine and also, of course, of the Ashbrook Center. You know him, you love him. John Mosier, Chair of the Department of History and Political Science at Ashland University, uh, Academic Chair of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program for teachers, and uh, a wonderful teacher scholar and colleague. And John just now has a new book out uh, entitled The Great Depression and New Deal, A Concise History. So we're going to be talking about court packing in the context of the Great Depression and New Deal, but maybe brought more broadly in American history. Mm -hmm. uh, we have an expert with us. It's going to be a great conversation. John, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, Jeff. Thanks for that introduction. Um. The court packing scheme. When people hear about it, they if they've heard of it, of course, they think of FDR. Yeah. They think of the New Deal. They think of the Great Depression. They know, of course, a lot of our listeners are very historically literate, so they know quite a bit about it. But some folks might not be. Yeah. Take us back to the 1930s and well, the situation that the United States faced and that FDR and the Supreme Court faced. What put FDR at odds with the Supreme Court? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the first thing worth mentioning is the fact that we remember it as the court packing scheme suggests that this was this was not how FDR wanted it to be known. Uh, it was immediately called that. It put what he he rightly concluded was the term of his critics. Uh, it's it's interesting how ordinarily it's the winners who get to name things right it's the battle of bull run right as opposed to the battle of manassas i guess unless you're in manassas uh and uh so fdr took the word liberal and took something that had never been considered liberalism before and and redefined liberalism more or less what we call liberal today is 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 the legacy of fdr's new deal meaning it's very something different from something before. So FDR understood how uh, how important language was for things like this, but he wasn't able to 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 get away from the term court packing. It was one of the biggest disasters of his of his presidency. Okay. So specifically in response to your question, uh it's um it's 1937 is when is when this plan is 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 unveiled. Starting in January 1935, the Supreme Court had issued a series of decisions, um, some of which were undercut significant chunks of the New Deal. 
So the New Deal had been going on since 1933. There was this huge wave of legislation in 33, a little bit less than 34. 35 is another big, big year for the New Deal. But while FDR is working with Congress to get through things like Social Security and uh, the National Labor Relations Act and, 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 and a number of other uh, major legislative achievements, uh, the Supreme Court is starting to whittle down what he had what had been what had been done so far uh first of all 1930 january 1935 uh the so-called uh the decision dealing with the so-called hot oil provision of the national uh the, the the national recovery act um there were some that were very close other some decisions that were that ended up going in roosevelt's favor but they were very close decisions uh the Supreme Court came one vote away from invalidating FDR's departure from the gold standard, uh, which which really would have been a, a massive blow. And then, of course, the huge one is in uh, was that March of 1935, I think, the uh, uh, the uh, Schechter case, which invalidated the National Recovery Act, the National Industrial Recovery Act, I should say, the NRA, NIRA had been passed in 1933 it was supposed to be the centerpiece of FDR's whole strategy for overcoming the economic crisis of the Great Depression and not only it does the Supreme Court overturn it but they do so unanimously um and the reason why he was having so much trouble with the court was the makeup of the court at the time there were four very conservative justices who were often referred to as the four, four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, and then there were three others. Um, and then, of course, these four were strict constructionists. Right, right. They were inclined to look at the stuff that, that, that was being passed starting in 1933 with a very jaundiced eye. They were, they were determined to, to stop this. This was going farther than the Constitution would allow. Then you had another faction. Oh, yeah, Ben Cardozo, uh, uh, um, Dak, uh, uh, Brand, Louis Brandeis, and um, Stone. Right? The, those three were, sometimes were called the Three Musketeers. They were practitioners of judicial restraint. They were willing to give the give the president and Congress the benefit of the doubt when it came to this stuff. And, and then there were two more who were wild cards, one of them being the Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes. Owen Roberts was the other. So all that all that the uh, the conservatives needed to overturn something was for one of the two wild cards to side with them. Well, either Owen Roberts or Charles Evans Hughes. Often they got both. And as I mentioned already, on the Schechter case, which invalidated the National Industrial Recovery Act, they got all nine. Cardozo is a little more complicated. He had a he wrote a concurrent decision that didn't agree with it entirely. But even he said this uh, the, the, this 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 law should work the way it's the way it's proposed to work. So. By the middle of 1935, FDR is livid at the Supreme Court. He feels particularly betrayed that guys like Brandeis and and and, and Stone and, and yeah, I, as I was going to say, right, that Louis Brandeis was a very famous progressive yeah. and made his chops even as a progressive lawyer, arguing arguing in favor of you know safety regulations, state based wage uh, minimum wage legislation, things like that. 
FDR must have been really shocked that someone like Brandeis or others on the court yeah. sided against him. Yeah, Roosevelt referred to him as old Elijah after the Old Testament prophet. And, and when he, he was, he just couldn't believe it. I mean, he could believe it was overturned because he knew that he, he knew that the uh, uh, the four horsemen were going to be hostile to everyone, and all they had to do is win over one person. But the fact that Brandeis went against it, fact is, he kind of misunderstood Brandeis. He, FDR sent some of his guys over to talk to Brandeis. What's going on here? And um, Brandeis had this great quote: "We're not going to let you guys centralize everything in Washington." Brandeis, it turned out, did not like the centralization of economic power. That's what made him an, a, a, a made him a uh, a progressive to begin with, and and somebody who wanted to check the growth of big business. Um, on the other hand, he didn't like the centralization of political power either. So he was happy to sign on to a decision that said the National Industrial Recovery Act and the codes that were drawn up for all these industries represent an unconstitutional delegation of powers from the US Congress to the to this government agency. And he said that doesn't that's not going to fly. So then you got that major decision. FDR's reaction then is obviously he's mad at the court. Um, does he immediately then start thinking, okay, I need to change who's on the court? Or does he start yeah. to take other avenues like, well, maybe let's go back to Congress and adjust these laws? Yeah, he, he considers a range of options. It, it isn't really until his reelection that he starts to focus on this. So, uh, by the way, one other big act, the overturning of the Agricultural Adjustment Act uh, in the Butler case in 19 in 1936, it was not unanimous. It was a much narrower, uh, a much narrower decision. Uh, but but FDR is convinced by late in his first term that something has to be done. But after the, the his crushing electoral victory in 1936 um the, you know one of the biggest landslides in US history and the democrat democratic control of congress just becomes absolutely overwhelming i mean obviously it, it arguably had been overwhelming ever since 32 the democratic majority increased in the in the 1934 midterms increased even more in the 1936 uh, 1936 elections fdr is thinking at this point now we can really go further um and and he gives that 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 sweeping second inaugural address where he says i see a third of a country ill housed ill clothed ill fed and 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 he's promising major reforms but the very first thing on his agenda in 1937 is dealing with the supreme court and and yeah there were other ways he could have done he could have waited them out on the other hand it did not look like any of those four horsemen were going anywhere uh he yeah you know, we thought of, well if we if we can provide financial incentives because they didn't they didn't have pensions originally that was something that that that, that was that, uh, that was developed in the 1930s okay. so he's considering um, all these other options how does he end up settling on what he settles on yeah i think part of it was he was he wanted to show how much how much authority he, ha he had now he, it, like with an unassailable majority in congress and he had never had a problem with Congress before. Congress gave him everything he wanted in his first term, a term and there was no reason for him to think that it would be, uh, that, that, that this was going to be anything different. Um, so, it, and part of it, I think, was his, was his disappointment at the fact that he had not been able to appoint 
a single Supreme Court justice. Right? Everybody on that court had been appointed by either Wilson, Harding, Coolidge, or Hoover. And this helps to explain why there was and so many of the, of the justices were inclined to oppose major parts of the New Deal. And I mean, maybe you pass a constitutional amendment to change the number. Well, how, you know, who knows how long that's going to take to get a constitutional amendment through. In the meantime, it looks like there's there's a very there's a lot of danger ahead. Uh, th there are cases making their way through the court system that uh, that were testing the constitutionality of Social Security and of the National Labor Relations Act. So F FDR doesn't think he has time to spare on this. What's very interesting about how Roosevelt goes about this, though, is, is he, he, he kicks it to his attorney general, Homer Cummings, and says, you know, put together, put together something. And the, and the idea that gets hatched, and, and, and FDR obviously had some input in this, too, but, but Cummings drafts the legislation. And, um, and what he comes up with, I'm just going to give the very quick summary of it, the most important part and the part that most people objected to was that for every member of the court that reached the age that had that had reached the age of 70 the president could name an additional justice up to a maximum of 15 there could be no more than 15 15 on the supreme court so obviously there were nine justices on the supreme court six of them were at least 70 years of age so if this legislation were to pass, FDR would immediately have the right to nominate six new justices to the uh, to the Supreme Court, obviously completely changing the uh, uh, the makeup of the court. And the argument, FDR used a, uh, used a number of arguments. Uh, one of these was that, uh, and this was a this is a classic progressive argument. The government should be like uh, a cart being pulled by three horses. Uh, the American people are in the driver's seat. One of those horses is the presidency. One, one, one is the is the is Congress. The third is the Supreme Court. They should all be pulling in the same direction. Right? If they're not, if horses pulling a cart are going in different directions, the cart doesn't go anywhere. Uh, he says the problem is there's all this old blood on the uh, uh, on uh, on uh, the court. Um, they don't have the energy that younger men would have, so they're 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 moving too slowly. Uh, and also, they have uh, old-fashioned ideas. They haven't kept up with the times. They have, and and by the way, he very much included um, included Brandeis in this category, saying that um, they had a horse and buggy interpretation uh -huh. of uh, of of uh, of the the commerce clause specifically. And um, and so we have to bring the Supreme Court into the modern era by bringing in younger uh, younger justices. And I guess in this context, it's important, um, right? To for uh, many of our listeners would know this, but it's important for us to note that in Article Three of the Constitution, it says that the Supreme Court justices will have their tenure during good behavior, which is essentially lifetime. Yeah. But it doesn't set the number of nope. justices, right? And it doesn't right. say that you couldn't do something like this and add it. Yeah, so it's not really a matter of this legislation going against the Constitution. That's right. Yeah, there was nothing fundamentally unconstitutional about it. The problem was 
that for all his Roosevelt's concern for all oh, these old gentlemen are tired and, uh, and and this is too much work for them, so we have to add some extra justices. Everybody understood what why FDR was proposing this legislation that he wanted to pack the Supreme Court, and this is why immediately it gets this name hung on it. And you know, packing the court does not sound savory. Uh, we don't remember it today as the Supreme Court reform of nineteen of nineteen thirty seven, which is would you know it certainly the bill was not called it was it was called the Judicial Procedures Reform Act. It was not called the court packing court packing. Act. <laughs> right. We entirely remember it today as court packing. So when FDR comes up with this legislation, it's brought to him. It's written, as you say, by his attorney general. Largely, he endorses it. How does he get it out to the public and what's the immediate reaction? So he calls together the, the leadership of, of Congress and simply announces, by the way, this is being presented before both houses, going before both houses today. And the, the, the congressional leadership were saying, excuse me, this was not how you do things. And it's not how FDR had done things up to this point, FDR had always worked closely with specific members of the uh, of 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 the House and, and Senate. Sometimes even with Republicans, some of the more progressive Republicans, he had a good, very good working relationship with it. But he sprang this on them suddenly. Nobody in Congress had had vetted it. He just said, "Here we go." So this it really looked to members of Congress, even mem even many longtime Democrats. Is if this is a, this is someone who wants to be a dictator, right? And he, it, he is and expecting us to. Yeah. Why is that? If if he departed from his usual method, is it because he was flush with power after his reelection, and he just thought, of course, everyone's going to go with it, or was there some strategic reasoning behind that? That's what's puzzling, and this gets to one of the most uh, difficult things about FDR that is frustrated. Um, the, the frustrated historians ever since is it's really hard to tell what's really going on in FDR's mind. Uh, he he left no diaries or memoirs. His his letters to 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 friends are, don't really go into into detail on here's why I did this. Um, he confided in very few people. Uh, he's, so he's still, in in many ways, a mystery to historians, even this this much later. So it 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 seems reasonable to think that FDR believed there's I I can do no wrong now. Uh, the the American people have spoken and reelected the by uh, by a, 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 I think an unprecedented margin at this point. Um, I think 64 was a wider one, but 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 for this point, there had never been a more lopsided presidential election than 19 uh, than 1936, and that that he that he Congress had always done what he wanted before. So here we go. And he springs it on them, and they're not happy. Um, there's something else going on here too. FDR had assumed the support of a couple of major blocks. In uh, in the legislature, one of them was uh, were Southern Democrats, the other were progressive Republicans. Uh, Southern Democrats had started to sour. I mean, they loved like Tennessee Valley Authority. They loved New Deal programs that directed money to the South. 
um, they weren't sure about some about certain other ones. And, and progressive Republicans were, like Brandeis, concerned about centralization of power. And if the, I mean, look, everybody knew that the, the Republicans were the conservative Republicans were going to impose, uh, oppose the, the plan, but they didn't matter. There's something like a third of, of, the, of the U.S. Senate at this point. So on their own, they can't stop it. But Southern Democrats joining in, as well as the progressive Republicans who had already who had, had had almost always sided with New Deal legislation, um, came out in opposition. Uh, Burton K. Wheeler, I guess he's neither a progressive Republican nor a Southern Democrat. He was a Democrat from uh, the state of Washington. Burton Wheeler had been the first guy to talk up FDR as president back in 19 in, in 1931. He had been regarded as a as a Roosevelt loyalist up to this point. He said, absolutely not. In fact, he took the lead in fighting against it on the Senate floor. And he would end up being one of FDR's biggest enemies uh, over this and other things, like over Lend-Lease in, in 1941. Uh, Burton Wheeler was a, a mortal and became a mortal enemy of FDR. But it was really the court packing that turned it. The idea is FDR wants to be a dictator, is what the is what the arguments are being. Carter Glass, Democrat from Virginia, makes this argument argument as well. And okay, we look back on it today and think mm, this is kind of overwrought. But in the context of the time, right, the, the democracy, the, the status of democracy around the world seemed to be very much in danger. Yeah, right. We kind of forget the 1930s, as you've yeah. written in other books, the 1930s were sort of the decade of fascism. Yeah, yeah. There were plenty of people uh, who, who admiringly looked toward Mussolini's Italy or, uh, uh, or, or Stalin's Soviet Union. And said, "These these are showing these regimes are showing us the way of the of, of the future. Uh, democracy is outdated with all of its uh, with with you know its its processes are too slow to address modern problems. There's corruption, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the 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 health of global democracy in 1936 does not look all that great. Uh, and and this this I think causes many members of Congress." to say, what's FDR really up to? He's won this crushing victory. His party dominates Congress. Now he's going to try to get control of the uh, of, of the Supreme Court. We can't allow that to happen. So when when people like Wheeler or Glass come out against the, 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 the legislation, what's FDR's reaction? Does he back off? Does he say, okay, let's talk about this. We can, you know, we'll work through this. We can modify things. Or does he no, double- he he goes, I mean, he goes on the air and he gives delivers one of his famous fireside chats. Um, because this is this was uh FDR's go-to. He, he would go to the directly to the American people and lay the case before them. Uh and, and, and it was in the context of this fireside chat that he did he gave his analogy of the three, uh, the three-horse cart. Um, and it didn't have the same magic this time. Um, something like a Gallup poll showed that a third of those who had voted for Roosevelt in 1936 opposed uh, the Judicial Reform Act. Um, a bunch of newspapers that had endorsed FDR in 1936 came out against this. So it, it 
there's there is 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 trouble on the horizon and then uh, there are hearings that are called right uh, homer cummings testifies elo eloquently in favor of it but then this letter gets delivered uh it was it was written by hughes but um uh, brandeis and devanter i think it was the three oldest members of the uh, of of uh, of the supreme court signed this uh, signed this letter saying thanks thanks for your concern but we're fine with the workload uh, we are not overwhelmed by by it in fact if you add more justices that's just going to slow things down more because we it's more people that have to be uh, have to be convinced and that was uh that was one of the nails in the coffin um but what ultimately i think derailed the whole project is something that the Supreme Court did. Um, this was in March. I mean, while this is all going on, the Supreme Court rules in West Coast Hotel v. Parish that a law, that, a state law that had been passed uh, um, um, establishing minimum wages was constitutional. Uh, whereas before they had struck down state minimum wage laws six months earlier yeah but so it, by by a, a five to four margin it was upheld in west coast hotel six months earlier a very similar case had come up and it went five to four invalidating it the swing vote was owen roberts owen roberts in autumn of 1930 the autumn of 1936 had ruled that the states couldn't pass could not have minimum wage laws six months later he rules that they can and to this day we are not sure why he did this but this got hailed in, in a phrase that soon caught on as the switch in time that saved nine the argument being that roberts was frightened by this this judicial reform act and he said oh i better change my mind on this or and and if i do if i switch my position on this it will undercut this act but if i don't we're going to look at be looking at trouble there's a problem with that argument uh roberts had gone on record as early as december of 1936 uh, yeah, December 1936, before this law had been unveiled, and saying that he had kind of changed his mind on this topic. Uh, it's it, it's it has been speculated, and I think it's a reasonable argument that the the real reason for his switch was not the Judicial Reform Act, but rather uh, the crushing reelection of Roosevelt. It it became clear. Look. We're, we're, He's we we're stuck with him. him. We're yeah. we're stuck with him. Eventually, people are going to retire, and sure enough, soon they started. Soon the, the four horsemen started retiring. So uh, we we're we're going to stop the we're going to stop fighting. And FDR never had a never had a major problem with the Supreme Court again after this. In fact, before before Roosevelt died in April 1945, he had picked eight Supreme Court justices. Wow. Yeah. I'm exactly as many as George Washington had. So, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, none in yeah, zero in his first term, but once the once the, uh, the the ice flow started to started to break away, it was it was uh, soon an avalanche. 
Before we continue with our conversation, I think it's important to take a moment and tell you about our undergraduate honors program in the liberal arts here at Ashland University. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks. Your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. Yeah, that's right, because I'm thinking of that same time as West Coast Hotel, there's another decision, um, NLRB versus Jones and Laughlin yep. Steel Company, yep. right, where the Supreme Court gives a, allows a more expansive reading of Congress's Commerce Clause, yep. upholding the Wagner Act. So those two decisions um, do kind of take the, the steam out of it. And then, of course, as you say, over the course of the rest of his term, FDR appoints all of these justices so that by the time you get to even 1942, our listeners might know the case of Wickard versus Filburn. Mm -hmm. Right. This is uh, upholding the Agricultural Adjustment Act in all of its comprehensive regulation. Um, I think it's unanimous that decision. So, yeah. so much has changed when these hearings happen, and but when the Supreme Court does the switch in time, it saves nine, but only in hindsight. We know that now. Right. Um, what was FDR's reaction? to the hostility so the yeah. political forces are hostile the public doesn't seem to be with him the supreme court has changed its mind does he just drop the scheme um it actually goes to a vote uh one of the things that the actually that also works against fdr is that um uh the um Majority leader Joe, uh, Joseph Robinson of Arkansas had been a real stalwart supporter of FDR. During this, during these debates, he has a heart attack and dies, and 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 so a crucial ally is lost in the course of this. It ended up going down by a, by a, a significant margin, and 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 it's it it is FDR's first major setback as president, and even though it didn't, you know, as as we've already established. The Supreme Court ends up going his way almost uh, immediately uh, after it, even without this happening. But his relationship with Congress is never fully restored. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. What's the effect of this yeah, on the yeah. rest of the course of the New Deal and the Roosevelt administration? I think, it, in a sense, the antennae are up on the part of members of Congress that 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 Southern Democrats are certainly more willing to oppose FDR afterward. For instance, uh, in 1938, FDR proposes a, uh, an Executive Reorganization Act, which really was pretty innocuous. Um, but. Southern Democrats seized on this as the, the FDR is trying to centralize more power within the executive branch. Uh, this is incipient dictatorship in, in going on. And, and FDR is amazed by this. I mean, in a way, he kind of understood why there was resistance to the, uh, the to the to the Judicial Reform Act. But this executive bill, he says, I, I, there's nothing in here 
that that's that uh would, would suggest I'm becoming a dictator it doesn't matter some of FDR's longtime supporters vote against him on this and the executive act the executive reorganization act goes down to defeat um so yeah he he's 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 lost a good chunk it's it's not as though the new deal's done there are a number of things though that start to accumulate the, the recession of 1937 uh, uh southerners start working with conservative republicans the so-called purge in of 1938 when when Roosevelt decides that well I'm, I'm going to go after Demo members of my own party who have let me down um so he targets his administration targets uh, you know by about a half dozen uh, uh members of the house and senate uh and FDR endorses their primary opponents and this is a disastrous strategy it, it doesn't work it, it doesn't work out FDR's way at all all but one of the 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 uh the the members of Congress that he targeted managed to be reelected in 1938 and they're not going to be friends certainly not going to be friendly to FDR after this um so and in 1938 the Republicans make major gains in both houses so that increasingly Republicans and conservative Democrats can work together to stop major pieces of New Deal legislation. So it, the New Deal kind of peters out by 1939. Is uh, it too it, much to say that the court packing scheme was the cause or one of the causes of the New Deal losing steam? Yeah, it's it's not the it's it it is and it's hard to say the, the 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 recession is a big deal as well because that takes a lot of the the wind out of the sails of the New Deal. Hey, the they're supposed to have brought about economic recovery. What's going on? But but it's a tremendous blow. Uh, and as I've said, it it the 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 relationship, the, the very cozy relationship between the White House and the Capitol that had developed during FDR's first term never fully recovers. It's not to say FDR can't get anything done. There's still some pretty important pieces of New Deal legislation that get passed in 1937 and 1938, but you don't see anything like the flood of New Deal legislation that you saw in 33, 34, 35. So historical insights from this, John, it strikes me yeah. that one of the things is, you know, the, the as, as we said before, the, the number of Supreme Court justices is not set in the Constitution. Congress mm -hmm. sets that by law, obviously. It can change that by law, but it hasn't been changed. Um, it was, wasn't changed before the 1930s it has not been changed since the 1930s yeah. and when supreme court made some decisions in the last few years especially the biden administration opposed they floated this idea and it seemed to have been met with i don't want to say universal hostility or suspicion but very wide uh hostility and suspicion even by people who would be supporters of president biden yeah yeah, and, and there's we see great disappointment on the left wing of the Democratic Party that this hasn't been done. I, and I think well, a lot of this has to do with the lessons of 19, 1937. But it's also clear that I, I, I haven't seen any written idea of this. It, 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 there, I, don't, I haven't seen potential legislation providing for this. But my understanding is when people talk about adding justices to the Supreme Court, they're not talking about doing it the way FDR did, saying, well, once they reach the, for each one who's above a certain age, th th there would be no pretense that this would be done for any other reason. Again, 
nobody believed FDR either, but this would be, this would not even have a hint of pretense about this being anything but putting as many people as we want to, to, to change the, the, the majority on the court. And, and, and I think there, that would appear, my mind, my mind keeps going to the word shameless. I don't know if it's the best word, but it would, it would, it would appear so openly partisan that I think a lot of more moderate Democrats would would uh, were were held back on that, yeah. um, and and I think that's that that's the case with Biden as well. It, on the other hand, if it went forward, probably Democrats would line up and do it. They would line up and line up and support it. Right? You wouldn't have the the the, the partisan divide is so much harder today than it was in 1937 you could bet that the Democrats with maybe one or two defections would vote for it and every Republican would 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 vote against it. It would immediately it would be interpreted as an entirely partisan thing because it would be a, very, a totally partisan thing. And I think this is the biggest argument that's used. What happens if Republicans retake it? They retake the, the, the White House and Congress. Right. Right. They'll just it's, it's going to be an arms starting an arms race and the Supreme Court. Yeah, we'll just keep adding every every new president who has a friendly Congress is going to just add as many uh, as many justices as necessary. So it, it, this would, it, it, you know, it, at least there was some kind of limit set to the 1937 Act of 15 would have been a huge expansion. Um, I think, yeah, this would end up just becoming a partisan arms race now. And it is interesting to me that it really does show you the fundamental importance of the idea in, in the mind of Americans back in the 1930s and still continuing today. And maybe that maybe this moment in American history really cemented this, this idea of judicial independence, that the Supreme Court is not supposed to be a partisan body, yeah. even though everybody knows justices have leanings, but it's not supposed to. It's supposed to be impartial. It's supposed to be judicial in its temperament, not political. And supposed to be independent of Congress and of the executive branch, and not an instrument, as people thought in the 1930s, and not an instrument of the president. Yeah, yeah, that that's idea, exactly right. Yeah, that idea seems to have the that moment in American history really seems to have cemented that deeply in American public life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely the case. Uh, if, if, if Americans looked at what FDR are trying to do, and they said, "Well, this is this is what dictators do." Was FDR trying to become a dictator? No, I don't think so. But but I can I understand why people thought that was the case. If our listeners want to, besides read your terrific narrative history on the Great Depression and New Deal, a concise history, if our listeners want to explore this really interesting moment in American history more fully, um, what resources do you recommend for them? Um, yeah, there are uh, there were a couple of, uh, of of books on this subject. The classic is uh, by James McGregor Burns. Uh, Burns was also has written one of the most famous biographies of FDR. It's simply called "Packing the Court: The Rise of Judicial Power and the Coming Crisis of the Supreme Court." Uh, there's another uh, more recent one called "FDR's Gambit." The Court Packing Fight and the Rise of Legal Liberalism, and that's by uh, by Laura Kalman. I am I am less familiar with that, but I I have heard it mentioned, and it is uh, it is it's a well regarded work. I think I would add to that Jeff Sheshall, uh, who was a speechwriter for Bill Clinton. I think it's S H E S O L, wrote a book called Supreme Power, 
which is really good in catching the drama of the moment. Okay. Um, John, you mentioned before uh, FDR's reaction to this and the fact that he kept put, he was surprised that people were opposed to this and then he kept pushing it, thought he could go to the American people in a fireside chat in, in 1937 and kind of overwhelm Congress with public opinion. Um, is that typical of FDR's temperament? It, it's very interesting to me well, how savvy politically he was and how, as you mentioned, no one could quite read him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he didn't reveal himself. He's not a Teddy Roosevelt sort of person, right? Yeah. Um, he's very savvy, very self-controlled. Um, is this incident, does this incident reveal something about FDR, the person? I think he believes that he is the genuine voice of the people. Um, he he is the. In fact, I believe it's in it's in 1936, 1937 that we first hear about the idea that the president has a mandate to go out and do stuff. So that so so FDR has a mandate to continue the New Deal. What stands in the way of continuing the New New Deal? What perhaps even jeopardizes what has already been accomplished under the New Deal? Well, it's the Supreme Court. So this is an impediment that has to be uh, that has to be removed. Or, reformed um so I, I i do think it it, it and, and the fact that he chooses to fight back by going before the american people on uh on on uh, the fireside chat right the fireside chats were wonderfully effective media for communications he got the message of his administration out in a way that no previous president had done because FDR knew how to use radio like no previous uh, previous president of course radio hadn't even been around all that long um, and, uh, but it just, this time it, it kind of fell flat and, and he would use, it's not like he, fireside chats stopped being a thing. He would, he would continue to give important fireside chats, uh, some of which uh, the, uh, his, his arsenal democracy speech is the classic example were just as effective as some of his earlier ones. Why the American people don't go along with this one? maybe they, they don't see it as as relevant as say the bank crisis the banks are closed what's going to happen right, now right, right. or what's going on in europe there, there's some this doesn't this seems a little bit more abstruse to the american uh, to the american public perhaps or as you say this 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 long-standing notion that the the judiciary is supposed to be independent uh, who wants a dependent judiciary? Well, that's what kings do. George III wanted had had right, judges right. that were dependent. It's what <laughs> dictators in Europe did. So yeah. I, I think that's I, I think it, it's it's FDR going to the well of pub, of of public opinion and finding it in this instance dry. Mm. What do we know about the individual justices' response to FDR's idea? You mentioned the letter that was yeah, written by the yeah. three oldest justices. But did the justices take this personally as an attack on them? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, Brandeis was the oldest was the oldest member. So when when he hears FDR say, well, these elderly men, they have a horse and buggy approach and they're, they're not uh, they're, they're not in tune with the times and they're they're growing slow and feeble in their old age. Brandeis took extreme exception exception to that. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 that, yeah, in a way, I mean, you know, it's, it's not like he, they, they became personal enemies, but, um, and as I said before, Brandeis had always had some concerns about, about some elements of the new deal that, that, and, and I, and I think that, that this is a, a 
points to the the extent to which the New Deal is simply a logical extension of Wilsonian era progressivism. You hear that often, and and FDR personally looked upon Wilson as a as 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 a hero. But a lot of the old those old progressives who were still around, a lot of them said this is different. This is not what Wilson. Uh, that that Wilson would it's not something Wilson would have approved of ah. if he were if he were still around the uh -huh. kind of the centralization of uh, of of political authority uh, the the bureaucratization the uh, uh, trying to to create a dependent court this isn't progressive so it's not just it's not uh. just rock rib conservative conservatives mm -hmm. who are uh, who who have a problem with F, with with some of what FDR is doing. Fascinating. I, I wonder if other people in the FDR administration, do we have any record of their views on what their boss was doing? Were they full-hearted, you know, full-throated supporters of this, or yeah. did they privately think, what in the world is our boss doing? Yeah, well, uh, there were a lot of them who were upset that they hadn't been consulted. I mean, they they learned about it when, when, F, when FDR unleashed it on Congress. Um, it was really this was Homer Cummings in his office coming up with this and bringing it to FDR. So uh, John Nance Garner, the vice president, said, "I don't support this." So again, <laughs> really, <laughs> Garner uh, Garner during spent a good chunk of FDR's second term trying to set himself up to be the 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 the, the party's nominee in 1940, and he made no secret of the fact that he wanted to take the country and the party in a more conservative direction. So this was, but th this was his opportunity, really, to to uh, to show that he was not FDR's man. Uh, well, if your own vice president and members of your administration and the key players in Congress are opposing it, I guess it's not a surprise yeah. that it met the fate that it did. Yeah, you know, John, puzzling to me, it seems like this would be a great movie. There's a lot of drama in this, yeah. more drama than you usually associate yeah. with the Supreme Court. But I don't think a movie's ever been made of this. No, I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, Joe Robinson keeling over at the uh, at the at the podium, and uh, <laughs> right. yeah, it, yeah, it, I, I think that's right. Uh, uh, let me ask you one last question. As a student, you're obviously a profound student of of this era in American history. What to you about this episode is the most surprising? Yeah, I think it's the uh, the the extent to which individuals in the House and Senate who had never gone on record as opposing any aspect of the New Deal were willing to jump ship on this. This was very much a, a, a bridge too far. So it 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 it, it really did show. Um, in, in a way that if you understand the party system in the 1930s, maybe it's less surprising, but certainly to people who look at the parties today, they might would, would probably find, find surprising the extent to which members of the president's own party would very would become very hostile to this and as well as the the major divisions within the Republican Party, the progressive Republicans had stood by the New Deal uh, the, loyally so there was a but but this brought the this helped to bring the the two wings of the party back together oh that's a fascinating fascinating really great conversation john thank you so much for taking the time to join us um in for a conversation about a time really that um is past but not past us <laughs> in so many ways uh john Mosier, thanks for taking the time to join us today on the american idea
Pleasure to be here, Jeff. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org. Thank you.